electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live in the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grasso. Tonight on Fast, hit the road, Jack. Jack Dorsey stepping down as CEO of Twitter, shares falling on the news. One of our traders says they are thinking about throwing in the towel on this trade. They'll tell us why. Plus, the chart master says beware of the bounce. Carter Worth laying out the next key levels for the market. And later, a small world with big opportunity. Disney shares touching their lowest levels of the year. So should you buy this pullback? We'll debate that. But we start off with breaking news out of the Fed as Chairman Jay Powell gets ready to face the Senate Banking Committee tomorrow. Let's get straight to Steve Leisman with some of the details. Steve. Melissa, thanks. Fed Chair Jay Powell striking something of a hawkish tone in testimony he's set to deliver to the Senate tomorrow. But with the two-year yield falling, it looks like the market... Here's something different. Maybe hearing his comments as dovish. Let's go through them. Making the first comment of any Fed official about the new variant. Powell says the recent rise in COVID cases and the Omicron variant pose downside risks to both growth and employment. It also increases uncertainty about inflation. But then he goes on to say this, and I quote, greater concerns about the virus could reduce people's willingness to work in person, which would slow progress in the labor market and intensify supply chain disruptions. Well, one way to read that is that it would exacerbate the inflation problem. He added that the Fed will use its tools to support the economy, the labor market, and prevent higher inflation from becoming entrenched. And then he had these other comments on inflation where he said it's running well above our 2% longer run goal. It will linger well into next year and that labor slack is diminishing while wages are rising at a brisk pace. All that said, he did go on to say he expects inflation to move down significantly over the next year and sees the job market continuing to improve. But One way takeaway here is that this is a chair who suddenly seems very focused on inflation. And take a look at the two-year yield, which is uh, now down below 50. It broke through 49, Melissa, in the wake of those comments. Yeah, right on the mark at 430 when those comments were, were released from embargo. Steve, what exactly did you take away that was hawkish, I'm curious, is just his optimism about the path, the trajectory of the economic recovery? Because... I guess I zeroed in on the dovish part of it, and that is the possible impact that it could have on the economy. Omicron, that is. That's just that's just your generally sunny nature, Melissa. I think that's <laughs> what I think it is. But I heard I heard a few things. He, he said that wages are rising at a brisk pace. He said inflation is going to be around. Uh, high inflation will be around well into next year. But most importantly was this idea, which you can kind of it's a really interesting question, Melissa. The idea that greater concern about COVID reduces labor supply, which will reduce supply, which will increase the inflation problem. That kind of one, two, three chain raises the question as to whether or not the Fed ought to attack any reduction in labor supply with greater easing or with lesser easing. You could have those and you've had those on the committee who have already said that more Fed stimulus does not bring or solve the supply problem. Indeed, it may make it worse. So that's an interesting question. I'm not 100% sure which way the Fed chair is leaning on that question. 
And you mentioned the labor problem, but it could also exacerbate just the global supply chain in terms of product, especially from overseas. I mean, that that's a huge factor, too, as we see European lockdowns and lockdowns elsewhere in the world. That's precisely the point, Melissa. There were um, a bunch of comment, a bunch of commentary over the weekend that said the worst problem from this new variant, if it ends up being bad, which we absolutely do not know. But some the worst problem could be an exacerbation of the supply problem beginning in China and the idea that Europe may get it worse than we have or may ever get it here. Those were two distinct issues that were out there was the foreign effect on the supply chain, which would exacerbate the inflation problem we have here in the United States. All right. Should be an interesting day tomorrow, Steve. Thanks so much. Yeah. Steve Leisman. All right, so glass half full or glass half empty, Guy Adami, I guess. How do you read the Fed chair's comments in light of the market bounce that we had today? I mean, Steve is highlighting my sunny disposition. That's sarcasm, by the way. (laughs) Uh, But how do you see it? I think you're sunny. Are you a Simon and Garfunkel fan? I'll answer that for you. Probably, you know, Metch is what you would say. But there's a great line in one of their songs. A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And that's just exactly what just happened over the last five minutes. I heard hawkish. You heard dovish. I guess it depends on your frame of mind. I think there was a hawkish tone to it as well. I think the thing you have to watch is this two-year, ten-year spread that Tim's been talking about. Got below, I think, 100 basis points or so is probably either side of that. I think that's what's interesting. I will tell you, I think ten-year yields should be a lot higher. But the market decides that. In terms of today's market, I don't think these comments are going to have any impact necessarily on what happened today. I will say that today was a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. The bad things for me came in the form of the Russell not trading particularly well. VIX still around 22 and a half. Good things is semi stocks are just on fire. Look at Lamb Research, obviously AMD making a new all time high NVIDIA. So that's a mixed bag for you today, Mel. And I take those comments as hawkish. The super cyclical sector of the market, the semis doing well. We also had a lot of the high valuation names doing very well. I mean, if you just take a look, a, a, a look at a list of them, Tim, I mean, we see them all raging back in today's session. How do, how do you interpret this action? Well, again, let's drop the, the, the Powell comments into it as well. And, and I think, you know, the great irony is he's using a potential shock as an opportunity to point out the inflationary impact of that, not what we expect from the Fed. In fact, the Fed usually there to sit by the punch bowl and therefore some of the higher multiple stocks get, 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 you know, a lot of relief from that. And, and you can explain some of that today. But I actually think it's almost as if some of the, the a lot of the market behaved as if they had heard these Powell comments, because, look, when you get mega cap tech outperforming, and that includes semis, which, uh, as Guy said, were up 4% today, and it outperformed the S&P by, by almost 14.5% since the October low. So, you know, it's, it's, they have been leading, and they've been leading in an environment where the market's coming to grips with a Fed that, that's, you know, I think coming to grips with inflation. And again, Powell highlighting that the inflation numbers are running well above their 2% target and pointing out a lack of slack in the labor force is, is to me, um, using an opportunity to talk about a shock where people think that the Fed is, is actually going to be their friend and at least signaling that this could be a chance to do something different. Now, again, let's wait and see. But um, mega cap tech outperformance, uh, right. Is this good news or bad news? Well, if you want the market to go higher, it's very good news. But the market is, is I think, becoming very uh, um, reliant upon some of these moves. The, the move in NVIDIA, the move in Qualcomm, the move in semis is notable. Uh, but the underperformance of industrials, transports, even banks, and, and this isn't you know, just a two-day event looking at us to pre 
Wednesday um, or pre-Friday. It's really the, the tone of the last five weeks. Yeah, and you have to wonder whether that underperformance um, is related to something other than Omicron. I mean, Karen, you're highlighting in today's call the underperformance of banks and how how disappointing that is to you. Um, at the same time, you know, this morning mm -hmm. before the markets open, we heard from the CEOs of the two major vaccine companies, Pfizer and Moderna, on CNBC, basically very optimistic about the prospects of those vaccines, either in their current form or in some other form, like a, another booster or more concentrated uh, form being effective against this new virus. And yet we still didn't have sort of that comeback, as Tim had mentioned, in some of these areas of the market that would signal economic strength. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just go back to Friday. I thought Omicron was part of it, but I actually mm -hmm. thought there was a little bit of fear of, you know what, maybe the Fed is no longer here anymore and we got to start getting used to that. And mm -hmm. so to just synthesize that with what Powell said, which I heard as very hawkish, you could say like, you know, a new variant would be an opportunity for uh, some easing even, right? Normally if things slow down, instead he pointed to what, you know, labor costs and what people staying home could eventually do that would be uh, inflationary. So I, I, I think it's hawkish. So I don't know if the dress is uh, blue and yellow or gold or whatever that thing was, <laughs> but I definitely see it as hawkish. And as it goes to banks, we often look at the 210 spread as a proxy for banks, even though they're not set up that way as a giant 210 spread. But if the short rates go up and the curve flattens, sentimentally, that's not good for banks. But if there's loan growth, that's good for banks. Well, I didn't buy anything today. I didn't buy anything on Friday. But one thing I would be looking to buy is banks if they trade down more. Yeah, Grasso, how do you interpret the market? reaction and, and how it's poised to move towards the end of the year. I mean, I think this is sort of like a good glimpse into market psychology as we wind up the year. Yeah, I, I think that Friday was it, it, Friday was based on a, on the variant in, in my book. I, I thought that this would have been the greatest excuse for there to be less Fed uh, next year. And, and I, I view it as dovish. His words were hawkish, but I think his actions out of it are going to be dovish. And when he points towards wage inflation, I think the Fed, as well as many others, feel that that's not necessarily a bad thing. We've been looking for higher wages. We've been looking for a way to create some sort of a wage inflation, uh, inflationary environment. I know that obviously everything that people are going to be buying are eating up all of those extra dollars, but nonetheless, when the supply issue resolves itself, you're going to be left with, in most cases, higher wages. And I think that's what the Fed is going to hone in on. I think the market really ratcheted up. And to Tim's point, if you want higher markets, you got to have tech lead. What I'm nervous about, though, Melissa, is the fact that the market was willing to give up a chunk really fast. Mm -hmm. That makes me nervous about staying long the market, mm -hmm. even though I think ultimately the market can move higher. We're having these swings on a monthly basis of up 5%, down 5%. And I think it's shaking out for something big to really hit the market in the next two months. You know who was steadfast about this uh, pullback on Friday? The retail investor. Um, and Tim, I know that you're sort of interested in the stat out by Vanda Research, seeing that retail investors actually stepped in and they bought a lot of the reopening trades that got hit the hardest on Friday. And that was that was a pretty good trade. 
Well, there's no question that, that this is a, a retail investor that's been emboldened and, and actually, you know, on some level, this is the retail market where there's a lot of liquidity. And a day like Friday, look, we, we all knew liquidity was going to be light. Let's be clear. Um, it was a day where markets could get pushed around. And I think a lot of folks have said we've seen this before and they, they're probably viewing Powell's comments as half full and the glass, the, the dress is gold. Karen. But I, I think it's a case where you've got mm -hmm. a, a retail investor that had to be very careful at, about looking at the playbook of COVID. And in fact, I think they went the other way. And, and, and kudos. I think it's a case where it, it wasn't about buying weakness in Peloton because, boy, was that not a whipsaw. It was not about buying some of the high multiple stuff. I think it was really about going after the market. Yes, we've seen a, a handful of the retail names. Some of the, the meme stocks had a pretty good day. Um, but I, I think it's very encouraging that you actually had the retail investors stepping in on a day one because it shows uh, they are not or they are no longer disenfranchised but again uh, understanding potentially Friday for what it was and and ultimately the confidence we have both in the medical community the pharma community and in the economy reopening so buy energy uh, buy buy you know some of those beaten down resource stocks buy some of those reflation trades and I think that's what they were doing yeah, $2 billion in inflows into ETFs on Friday alone. That's, that's how big that flow was. Well, markets bouncing back today following Friday's big sell-off, but the chart master says don't get too excited. Let's get to Carter Worth of Worth Charting to break down some key levels. Hey, Carter. How are you? So, I mean, before we look at a few tables, a few charts, at the end of the day, it was a very defensive day. Despite the headline gain in the S&P, we know that only four sectors outperformed the market and they were all defensive. Utilities, REITs, of course, tech. And um, it just smacks of something unconvincing. The Russell uh, down on the day and so forth. Let's look at a table or two and then two charts. The first is just a, a one item table and you can see it right here on your screen. We know that the S&P 500 from the peak on Monday to just Friday's low is down 3.4%. And so looking at that drawdown, if you were to try to put that in the context of all drawdowns um, since the COVID low, so let's just do that, meaning remove my opinion, your opinion, everyone's opinion. There have been 17 instances since the March 23rd, 2020 COVID low where the market has declined 3% or more. Call it a dip, call it a correction, sell off, drawdown doesn't matter. And this one, is yet another. It's the 17th down 3.4%. And if you look at the median and mean drawdown, it's closer to 6%. And so the question is, at this point, um, could we possibly be done with a sell-off? Again, a very defensive day. If you look at the charts on the screen, we've retraced exactly 50% of the drop, uh, and we, we faltered right at that level. And, and my hunch is that it's just not going to escape uh, as easily as down 3.5%, over the course of a few sessions and on to new highs. And the damage done, of course, in value, which continues to struggle in small caps, all of it, um, it, it's so dependent, as you all were saying, on a handful of names. And so while those names do drive the market, they are exceedingly defensive. So Carter, what's your, what's your projection for the rest of the year? I mean, seasonally, we usually see gains, but your chart work seems to indicate that that might have some trouble uh, happening this year, materializing. Right. So in the sense that givebacks are, are part of any uptrend, the, the giveback I don't think is concluded. And uh, the ferocity of the selling and the feeble nature of the bounds would suggest that uh, the path higher, if one thinks that's what's coming seasonally or not, uh, passes through a lower price. 
And so I think one is right to fade a lot of the ricochets in today's market. All right. Carter, thanks. Good to see you. Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Feeble. I like that word. That's a good one. Um, so, Guy, would you fade this bounce? <laughs> it's funny. You like the word feeble, you come to me. I mean, I but that's not, you know, <laughs> not Pavlovian or something or not Freudian. I can Anyway, yes. what's your Of course opinion? it is. Uh, no, listen, I tell you, Carter always brings up great points. The one thing I led with, and he mentioned, is the fact that the Russell, maybe he did have that failed breakout in the IWM. I thought we absolutely were off to the races when we broke that sort of 230-ish level. Now here we are back below it. The line in the sand becomes 215, which has been support for a while. So if it's going to be feeble, it's going to be predicated on how this IWM trades. 215 is the level you have to watch. Ferocity was also a good word that Carter used. And I'll go to Karen. Came to the ah. end of the year. <laughs> okay. What did you? I'm sorry. What was the well, question? Going to the end of the year, Karen. the Santa Claus. Yeah. Will we see the Santa Claus rally? Yeah. I mean, I think that I agree with Carter that down is the way to get to up. So um, I'm lo- not wasn't looking to buy today. I feel like there's a little more rocky road ahead. We'll see what we hear from the, uh, Powell. Maybe that will do something to the market. I'm not selling anything. I want to buy things, but I do feel like there's a little bit of a rocky road to come. And so I want to wait for that. And then um, also I do think there will be some pressure, some tax loss selling to the extent people have any losses at the very end of the year. All right. Coming up, Dorsey. He's done at Twitter. The company's CEO stepping down. One of our traders is thinking about selling their position on the news. More on that in just a few. But first, we are rounding up the retail trade Black Friday in the books and just a few hours left to Cyber Monday. So which retailers are cashing out as a big winner as we are breaking it all down next? Don't, don't go anywhere. Much more fast in two minutes. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Retail stocks rebounding slightly today despite an underwhelming start to the holiday shopping season. Let's get to Courtney Reagan with the numbers. Court. Hi, Melissa. So on the first big holiday shopping weekend, in-store shopping was actually strong relative to last year, and then online shopping a little less so. Retail Next says that in-store traffic grew 52% Black Friday through Sunday, though down 21% from 2019. Black Friday is forecast to maintain its position still, though, as the biggest day of the year for in-store retail. Traffic just on Black Friday did surge over 2020, according to Retail Next and Sensormatic, 
though again below those 2019 levels. Retail sales grew more than 14% on the three days from Black Friday to Sunday compared to that same period last year, with in-store spending up more than 16% from 2020, up 1.6% from 2019. Digital spending grew 5% and up 29% from 2019. This is according to MasterCard's spending pulse. Adobe data, however, says for the first time e-commerce spending on Thanksgiving Day and Black Friday failed to grow year over year, flat and then down 1% respectively. Now, the company says shoppers have already spent more than $99 billion between November 1st and 28th, and that is up more than 13.5% over last year. So it does point to the early spending for perhaps some of the digital disappointment over the weekend. Though remember, we're comparing this to 2020 when we saw really an accelerant on digital sales. Today's Cyber Monday results are still expected to mark the biggest online sales day of the year, and that peak stretch isn't expected until between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. Pacific time. So while Amazon shares were up today, many other e-commerce players like eBay, Wayfair, Etsy, Stitch Fix, Warby Parker, Allbirds, and some others were actually lower. So let's see what these results end up bearing out. But we got a lot of shopping left to do here tonight, Melissa. Yep, for all the procrastinators out there, that's for sure. Court, thanks. <laughs> Courtney Reagan. Um, this is sort of a glass half full, glass half empty situation as well. Um, Steve, I don't know if you've already gone shopping or gone online shopping. It sounds like a lot of pull forward has happened. Yeah, I think a lot of pull forward has happened. You brought this up months ago that, that you always shop earlier. Uh, my wife does the same thing. I think that everyone was so... Uh, in tune with what the supply chain was going to look like that they wanted to make sure that they started extremely early so there was an awful lot of pull forward and then for these just handful of days i think you also have to remember that we haven't been with families in quite some time so instead of staring at your phone shopping online or going to a store people actually took the time and spent time with their families so i, I don't want to rush to judgment for this weekend Let's wait till it all shakes out and see what it looks like going into year end and how these companies do uh, in this quarter. Yeah, I mean, if, if companies are able to sell more full price or fuller price items than promotional items, that should theoretically be very positive for the retailers, Karen. I'm wondering um, what, what your takeaways are from Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday. Yeah, exactly that. I think that we don't know that. We just see a top line revenue number, right? We, and how it did over year over year and year over uh, stack to 19. But I think that is really what's going to make a big difference. I mean, we've heard again and again that um, the environment is not nearly as promotional as it has been in the past. And so they're able to sell full price. I think they got a lot of stores got rid of the, you know, door busters where they give away whatever for free or the first, you know, giant sales. I haven't seen that as much. So I think we only know part of the story. And I think the rest of the story is positive for retailers. Supply chain doesn't sound as bad either. We heard from the Walmart CEO uh, at the White House today saying basically that all the delays at the ports, et cetera, um, they've improved since they reported earnings just a couple weeks ago, Tim. Supply chain is, I think, significantly better. And, and granted, you know, news on uh, you know, coming out of Africa, new variants, et cetera, could be you know, something to watch. 
Uh, how about Vietnam back at work? And, and think about what this means for someone like Nike and, and where they got knocked down. Although, again, if you look at Nike, um, it's rallied with Vietnam exports being up almost 19 percent. Uh, they turned everything back on. I think there's other parts of the world that are doing that as well. Uh, I think if you if you look at the last four or five days uh, and again, from even levels we were at on Wednesday, the story of a longer shopping season, very difficult comps uh, alive and well. But I think uh, if you look at where the consumer is and their ability to spend this holiday, season. Uh, I think it's going to be an extraordinary you know, look back on the full tally. How about people, you know, buy now, pay later, so affirm. Um, and, and I think those will be places to see. We'll see more in hindsight, really, uh, just where that approach has taken hold. I, I still think that Visa is oversold on the downside here. And, and look that you're going to see uh, some very strong numbers out of both MasterCard and Visa in the holidays. There's a, a return to plastic, even if the world may be changing slowly uh, in their face. Except for Guy, who uses a rubber band as his wallet, as we learned on Twitter. <laughs> Just quickly, Guy, what's your favorite shopping, but non, non-retail <laughs> shopping stock? So like a payment non-retail. stock? Non-retail, I was gonna yeah. give you, I was gonna, I think Tim is right about a firm, by the way. I think if you wanna throw SoFi in that mix, I mean, it's not necessarily in that world, but it's close enough where that stock is sold off, you can take another look at that. Um, I was going to mention Costco only because that's a stock that continues to make new all-time highs, something that Steve's talked about. They report in about a week or so. I think you can stay there. The one that sort of leaps off the page that could be really interesting, given the sell-off we've seen, uh, is Restoration Hardware. You look where that stock was a few months ago. Look where it is now. We're at levels that we broke out to the upside from back in April. And I'll throw a Best Buy at you, which had that parabolic move to 140, and it's given the entire thing back. I think Best Buy is worth a look for a trade as well. All right, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Hit the road, Jack. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey stepping down. So where does this stock fly to next? Plus, no dice. Casino stocks take a tumble on some reports out of Macau. The traders are anting up on this trade. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Blockbuster news out of Twitter. Jack Dorsey announcing he is stepping down as CEO. He'll be replaced by Twitter's chief technology officer. Twitter shares dropping two and three quarters percent today. This after a big pop initially on the news. It's got one of our traders thinking about selling out of his position in the stock. Joining us now on the Fast Line is the one and only Dan Nathan. Dan, why are you souring on Twitter? 
All right, Mel. Well, we've done this a couple times now over the course of 2021. Jack Dorsey at their analyst meeting in Q1, I think it was February, got everybody all geeked up, as Guy Dami likes to say, about product development and the velocity of it. And we saw them move into a lot of new things. We saw fleets. We saw super files. We saw Twitter blue. None of this is really moving the needle. So now that Jack is gone here um, and the CTO, I think it's just a really disappointing choice. If, if technology and innovation at the company has been the big problem in insider, okay, who is the CTO, is really not going to be the fix for a company that's really struggling to grow off of their, like, 200 million user base. So, to me, I'm pretty disappointed. I've tried two trades this year prior to this latest one, which I have talked about on Fast Money over the last few weeks here, and this is just not the piece of news that I think is going to get um, the stock going here. And one last thing, okay, this company went public in 2013 at 26 bucks. It's up about 75% or so. The NASDAQ is up 235% since then. The S&P 500 is up 135%. And you know what's up since then? A lot more than all of that combined is Square, the company that Jack was the CEO of. It's up 1,800% or so. So to me, this one's really got to shake out. It's got lower lows, and I still believe this company is a uh, feature on a larger platform. It's not going to be going at it alone, and maybe the CTO is a good choice to sell this company, not the founder still there who took them public years ago. So what's the verdict, Dan, in terms of selling out of your position? Well, I mean, basically, Mel, I was in it through calls and call spreads here, and it's basically worthless at this point. And I was thinking about adding a long position before this sort of news, an outsider, maybe somebody with more of a media background to get an engaged audience and grow this audience base better with maybe a more of an e-commerce focus, because I think social commerce is going to be a huge, huge um, play for them eventually if they get there. But this is just disappointing news to me right now. All right, Dan, thanks for phoning in. I appreciate it. Dan Nathan. For more on Dorsey's departure from Twitter and what it could mean for this, his other company, Square, let's bring in Packy McCormick of Not Boring Capital. Um, Packy, were you surprised uh, today by the news? And are you surprised? You know, I can understand the, the decline in Twitter shares, but Square didn't get a pop either, even though now it's going to get a full-time CEO. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, Jack was sending the signs last night. He sent a very melancholy, I love Twitter tweet. Uh, we should have should have seen it. Obviously, the market got excited uh, early on about Jack stepping down. Uh, and then as the, the new CEO was announced, uh, it faded. And we can talk about that decision. I actually like it a lot more than, than Dan does. But I think the square kind of shrug is an acknowledgement of the fact that Jack has mostly been focused on, you know, square and then his other love, Bitcoin, uh, for most of the past at least a year, maybe a little bit more. And so, you know, if he's spending a little bit more time at square, um, you know, that, that's maybe a, a slight positive and maybe the stock's mm-hmm. up a little bit. But I think he's really been focused mostly on square a lot of this time. So why is a decade veteran, the CTO, with the right choice to bring Twitter out of its innovation funk into the new age of monetization and social commerce? I mean, what, what's the argument there? I think the argument is, you know, Jack in his letter wrote about the fact that, you know, the company needs to move beyond having a founder. I think there's still something about the idea of having stability of somebody inside the company who is well-respected and trusted and who's actually over the past couple of years, one of the most impressive things that Twitter has done is kind of rebuilding its entire tech stack to be able to innovate on top of. They had a ton of technical debt built up, uh, and under Agarwal, they've they've kind of uh, paid down some of that tech debt and made it easier to innovate. So while the particular experiments have not worked out to, kind of to the full extent that I would have hoped that they would so far, the fact that he built a platform 
where those experiments can happen a lot more quickly, I think is a really good sign. It's still really early in terms of things like Twitter Blue. I paid the 299 essentially out of charity. I think there's a lot of users who feel the same way that you know Twitter generates a ton of value for a ton of people without being able to capture a lot of that value. Hopefully what's happened at Twitter is that that tech uh, refactoring has helped a culture where innovation is now possible and they'll stumble into the right thing. I think one of the most impressive things about Square and one of the maybe biggest differences is that Square's also run a bunch of unsuccessful experiments. They just haven't totally kind of reshifted the company's trajectory like Twitter, where Twitter goes all in on one thing and then all in on the next thing. Hopefully what they've set up at Twitter now is a base for innovation uh, like Square actually has and has benefited from. So they finally hit on Cash App and that was the thing that, that kind of uh, made them take off. PMAC, Karen mentioned on our call before the show, Dan just alluded to it, that this, uh, this announcement might open, potentially open the door for an acquisition of Twitter by somebody. Do you see it that way? I have a hard time seeing who in this environment is able to acquire someone like Twitter. I mean, you know, who has the combination of the money and the ability to get a deal through uh, seems, seems unlikely. Twitter, you know, for the fact that it's only a $36 billion company, is a hugely, hugely important asset and shaper of the public conversation. So I can't imagine regulators letting that fall into somebody like a Facebook's hand. I don't see it going that way. I mean, I think you know I, I'm a long, a long-suffering Twitter shareholder, and I, I think probably you know we'll probably see another year or two of them trying to figure out kind of what to do with this this platform that they built and this really unique asset that they built and how they can capture value from that going forward. Packy, great to see you. Thanks. Great to see you. Packy McCormick of Not Boring. Uh, Karen, what went through your mind, I believe, is also a potential sale, although the stock action, the price action, didn't really support that argument. True, it didn't, right. Otherwise, it would be up. But I think that if you are a company out there and you have had an interest in Twitter, I think the door is open now, right? Instead of doing a whole search and them looking for a CEO from outside of the company, Think they would have had a hard time doing that someone might have said look i don't know that twitter will you know not get sold in the in the short term so do i want to take this job so instead they went someone inside he may be great i don't know but clearly there's some issues there that they need to get a handle and he hasn't been very uh shareholders aren't familiar with him so it's sort of an interesting choice also we are getting towards proxy season where you have to nominate directors not that the vote is but you have to nominate directors soon Obviously, we know Elliot has been unhappy with a lot of things there. I don't know if there's more pressure coming. And so Dorsey felt he had to do this. And so just to me, it all seems they're more vulnerable to a sale now than they have been in a, a long time. Has the Twitter picture, in your view, Tim, changed in the past day? Well, as a Twitter... Yeah, as a Twitter shareholder, um, look, I, you know, this is incredibly frustrating. And there's two things that are frustrating to me. One, um, I, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that Jack Dorsey was able to be CEO, basically married in, in, with two families um, and in a world that we live in today and, and actually get away with it this long. But, but that's not my frustration. My frustration is on investor day in February, this was a company that said we're going to double revenues from 3.7 billion to seven and a half billion by the end of 2023. We're going to take DAUs up to 315 million. And the stock basically rallied from uh, their deal with Elliott and really some sense that there was already going to be stuff in play, including two billion in buybacks to that investor day where they made you know, think about those those proclamations. I mean, they're almost absurd at this point. Uh, stock rallied 80 percent and is now down 
45% off that 52-week high. I mean, I think there's been a lot of a head fake here. And I, and I think, you know, the dynamic around an activist investor um, who's incented to see the stock go higher and make some changes and do some things that are going to move the stock on top of the company going out and making some bold proclamations to me is a formula here that I think has left a lot of investors maybe on the wrong side of this. Sounds like you're ready to throw the towel in. Well, I just think you have a case where um, a lot of good news was made almost clear and, and articulated, and I don't see where that's coming from. And yet, uh, look, I'm happy to see Elliott uh, try to continue to maneuver and, and push this company to where I think the intrinsic value is. Um, and I think they are incented to see it go higher again. But I think a lot of this has been tied up in the stock price over the last six months. All right. Coming up, Disney losing some magic today as the stock briefly hit its lowest level in over a year. How you should play this big pullback, plus time to take some chips off the table. Casino stocks plummeting today after some bad press out of Macau. The traders are digging into the details next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Casino stocks taking a hit on reports of illegal gambling operations and money laundering in Macau. Let's get to Contessa Brewer, who's got the details on this. Contessa. And Melissa, those stocks were an improvement over when this market first opened this morning. The CEO of Macau's biggest junket operator, Sun City, was arrested on cross-border gambling charges, allegedly involving cryptocurrency. Shares of MGM China, Sands China, and Win Macau immediately took a steep dive. You can see them down. MGM China actually fell, well, maybe you're not seeing that, but they fell like 10%. And then when the markets opened here, as I said, the casino stocks took a hit, but then rebounded. Why would that be? Let me tell you. Junkets are the VIP segment, right? That's organized gambling for high rollers. That segment has been under pressure for years. According to Bernstein analysts, the junket business is in decline and will never return to its future scale in Macau. That's a quote from their note today. Here's the numbers laid out by Deutsche Bank today. In 2013, the VIP segment generated $29.8 billion in gaming revenue. The mass market was about half that. And then came the junket crackdown in 2014. By 2019, the junkets brought in less than half of the total gaming revenue in Macau, with some of those players that had been in junkets turning to premium mass. Deutsche Bank estimates in 2023, a decade from what I just showed you, the mass segment will bring in twice as much as the VIP segment, so a total reversal. The company insiders I spoke with today kind of shrugged about this arrest of a junket boss. They say the more pressing concern is the Omicron coronavirus variant and the impact that might have on visitation restrictions in Macau, because as you know, Melissa, they're nowhere near bounced back. Yep. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer, throw in a JP Morgan number, mm -hmm. and that's an estimate of 1.1 to 4% of operators' earnings in 2023 will be from the VIP segment. So, very, a shrinking part of the puzzle, as Contessa had highlighted. At the same time, crackdowns in China, Tim, I mean, that's just part of the risk in this trade here that doesn't end. Yeah, I, I, yeah the, you have both, uh, you know, kind of headwinds coming at you right here on, on that headline. I, it, I think. 
great reporting by Contessa, because I, I think the, the, the trend here on VIP versus mass is what it is. Um, I, I think there is concern that this is singling out, but also going after folks using different types of headlines to really just attack the sector and possibly you know, reissue licenses. I don't think that's what's going on here. And I do think if you're an investor and believe this is just about travel mobility, uh, this is a great trade. And I've been clear on Vegas Sands, and I'm, I'm sideways on this trade, mostly through options. I, I do believe the story here is of a company that's got a lot of cash, being very opportunistic, well-positioned in Southeast Asia, not necessarily all in Hong Kong and in, and in Macau. Um, I think this is really a story. Most mm -hmm. casinos that don't even have Big Brother uh, in China are, are running into this kind of a headwind. It's travel mobility. That's an opportunity to me. Yeah. Um, Grasso, your take on the casino operators, particularly the ones in Macau. Yeah, so obviously the variant is the major headwind uh, du jour for them. Just when you start to think that they can get their uh, footing below them, you get hit with another variant. So it used to be either you played MGM in the States or you played the leaning towards Macau there. And even MGM is going to get hit with the variant as well. So I think you have to really be cautious over playing Macau. I don't think that you could dive in just yet because the variant is a major headwind and we don't know how this is going to shake out. But I would take a dabble in MGM because I think that will clear up sooner rather than later. Coming up, a Disney downer shares briefly hitting the lowest level in over a year. So is there any more magic left in this stock? Plus, Salesforce earnings are after the bell tomorrow, so we're taking a dip into the options pits for a look at how they are playing the names. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Calling all Kathy Wood fans, CNBC's Sarah Eisen is sitting down with the head of ARK Invest to find out her top investment ideas. That's this Wednesday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Head over to cnbc.com slash pro slash talks to catch that interview. Meantime, check out shares of Disney dropping to its lowest level in a year um, before staging a midday comeback. The stock is now down more than 18 percent this year. Guy, what do you think of Disney? Well, I think finally, I, I would submit for the first time in a long time, this is actually an area where you want to buy it. We've said on the show for a while, it makes sense if you get into the mid-140s to take a look. And 140s at 145 level made sense because you go back to December 2019, January 2020. That's basically where the stock topped out at before it cratered. So past resistance becomes support. And I think it found it today. Traded two times normal volume, which was good. We did bounce later in the day. I think if you've been looking for an entry point, this is about the best one, well, obviously the best one in terms of price, but just in terms of setups, this is the best one we've seen in a very long time. Karen, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. This is both a stay-at-home trade and a reopen trade, right? You have the parks and cruises and whatnot. That's obviously reopen. And then the whole streaming business, which has been the story for the last year and a half or so. I think it's, it's, it's come down a lot. That doesn't mean it's cheap. It's still expensive, but it will always be expensive. It's a premium company. It deserves a premium. I think it's okay. I agree with Guy. Not a bad place to get started. Grasso, quick thoughts here. Yeah, I think uh, all of us used to think that 130 level. So I agree with Guy, but that 130 level seems like a magnet to it. And I do believe Guy mentioned in the past that Disney should acquire or could be an acquirer of Twitter, you know, things that make you think about here. All right. Well, Jim Kramer, that is, is all over the Disney trade. To find out how he is playing this move, check out the CNBC Investing Club newsletter. All the information to sign up is right there on your screen. Coming up, the Salesforce setup, the Dow component reporting results tomorrow after the bell. We'll break down what you can expect.
Fast Money is live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We'll be back in two. Check out shares of Salesforce uh, surging higher in today's session as tech rebounds from Friday's washout. The software giant reports earnings after the bell tomorrow. And option traders are betting on even bigger gains ahead. Mike Coe joins us now with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, so we saw Salesforce trading well over two times their average daily options volume. We also saw calls outpacing puts by about two to one. Right now, the options market is getting longer by about $20 million worth uh, equivalent, and the implied move is about 6.4% on earnings. That is slightly below the eight-quarter average, but less than actually the moves over the last two quarters. 300 strike calls were the most active ones, the ones that expire at the end of this week. Over 4,300 of those traded for about $6.80. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to finish the week higher after they report earnings. Tim, what are your thoughts on CRM? I'll tell you, you know, after their at their investor day, uh, the focus should be on margins here for a stock that has not knocked the cover off the ball since 2Q, although it's still slightly outperforming the Nasdaq on the year. Um, I, I think they, their commercial business is growing, and I think it, you know, nine times EV to sales, it's not cheap and never is cheap. I, I think the stock's going to respond to the margin commentary that management gave at investor day. Yeah, Guy. You had a quick move from 311 down to 280. I mean, that, you know, 8.5% move over the course of three or four days was makes the setup, I think, pretty good. I'm with Coco. Beware on this one. Dan's talked about it being the best-looking chart out there. I think this pullback is giving you a decent opportunity on the long side. I mean, they have surprised to the upside before. It might happen again. Unless high-valuation stocks are no longer in vogue, Steve Grasso, in which case, I don't know, CRM's out the, out the window. That's, that's exactly where my head went. As long as the market keeps on this path, what it's doing right now, where it seems like rates are going to stay low, this is definitely a tailwind to large cap tech and to the growth segment of tech as well. All right. Mike Co, a.k.a. Coco Beware. Thank you. For more options, options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Qualcomm, despite a huge move, 45% off that bottom, still cheap to its peer group, and semis continue to run. Qualcomm. Steve Grasso. Twitter, human nature is to sell it. It's justifiable. I get it, but I think the stock is going is to rally. It's going to bounce from here. Chairwoman. Yes. So over the last year, the OIH uh, and underlying commodity spread has moved around, diverged, converged. It's near its absolute widest. My final trade is long OIH. Guy. Hey, Mel, do you think the Mets had to do Scherzer for their fan base? Yes or no? I know you're <laughs> well-versed yes. in this. Yes. Yeah. See that? It's, it's inc- it really is amazing. AMAT, semi-equipment name. Sold off a little bit. A-M-A-T. Okay. Thanks for watching. Fast Day back here tomorrow. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.